Chapter 7. How to Choose a Translation When it comes to choosing a Bible translation, you have options. A lot of options. It can be overwhelming, especially when it's not clear what the differences are. How are you supposed to settle on a translation to use in your own studies? That's a tricky question. And to answer it properly, we'll have to spend a little time examining just what goes into translating the Bible. The Difficulties of Translation First things first, the Bible wasn't written in English. Now why does that matter? Because translating between two languages isn't an exact science. When we learn other languages, we usually start with equivalent words. In Spanish, a mountain is a montaña. In French, a library is a bibliothèque. In Russian, a movie is a kino. These are one-to-one translations. There's no ambiguity here. If you want to talk about a mountain or a library or a movie, it's just a matter of finding the equivalent word and swapping it out. But languages are more complicated than that. Two different languages can come with two different ways of looking at and talking about the world, which is where translation gets complicated. If an Inuit from Alaska talks about Inetuapak, he's talking about the impatient excitement people feel when they're waiting for someone to arrive, which makes it hard not to keep looking out the window while they wait. We know that feeling in English, but we don't have a single word for it like the Inuit do. It doesn't translate as easily. The Portuguese experience saudade, the Dutch enjoy gezelligheid, the Chinese talk about places that are right now, and Arabs tell their loved ones yabarni. These are all concepts that require a sentence or two of explanation to understand in English. The loneliness and incompleteness caused by an absence or loss the coziness and fun that comes from a feeling of togetherness with others, something filled with an exciting, lively atmosphere that draws people in, and even an expression of the desire to die before a loved one because outliving them would be too difficult. These phrases aren't impossible to translate, but they're impossible to translate simply. Beyond that, there are other obstacles in the translation process. Puns, wordplay, and idioms are notoriously difficult and often impossible to bring across the language barrier. In English, we can say it's raining cats and dogs to mean it's raining heavily. But translate that literally into another language, and you might get some worried looks. In Russian, hanging noodles on someone's ears means to lie or talk nonsense. In Serbian, someone who rips the clouds with his nose is arrogant and conceited. In Turkish, if you're ironing someone's head, you're annoying him or her. In Hindi, when your limbs are loose, you're tired. These phrases have literal translations in English, but the literal translation doesn't tell us what's actually being said. These idioms all require further explanation if we want them to be more than, well, more than noodles hanging on our ears. The Original Languages But the Bible wasn't written in Inuit, or Russian, or Chinese, or Dutch, or Hindi for that matter. Those are all living languages still in use today. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic. And even though the Hebrew and Greek languages are still alive and well, they've changed significantly over the thousands of years since the books of the Bible were written. The meanings of words, the words themselves, and their pronunciation have all morphed and shifted over the millennia. In summary, translating the Bible means taking ancient manuscripts, written in languages that have changed dramatically over the years, and then trying to convey the meaning of those words, phrases, idioms, and puns in a way that makes sense to speakers of a modern language that didn't even exist when the manuscript was finalized. 
all while staying faithful to the original text. That's the challenge. It's why so many Bible translations exist, and why so many continue to be made. So, when you open your Bible to John chapter 1, verse 1, and read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, what you're actually reading is a translation of a very old form of Greek, Koine Greek specifically, which was originally written entirely in capital letters without spaces between words and without punctuation. Imagine how difficult it would be to read through the Bible if you turned to John chapter 1 verse 1 and instead found that there were no spaces and no commas and no periods. That's what the translators had to work with. By the 9th century, the manuscripts had been updated with spaces, accent marks, punctuation, and lowercase letters, which made life a little easier. But it also means that many of those punctuation marks are open to interpretation. Is that really the right spot for a comma? Is this the start of a new sentence or a continuation of the previous? These are the kinds of questions scholars have to consider during the translation process. Usually the answer is fairly obvious, but there are times when a misplaced comma can completely change the meaning of a verse. See our article, What Happened to the Thief on the Cross, for an example. Likewise, when you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you're reading a translation of classical Hebrew. Unlike Koine Greek, classical Hebrew isn't all squished together, but it didn't include a way to record the sounds of vowels. For us, that would be like opening Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to find all the vowels missing in the entire Old Testament. It's not impossible to figure out what's being said, but definitely a little more complicated. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that the Masoretic scribes added additional markings to preserve vowel sounds. Even modern Hebrew is often written without vowel markings, but those markings do help clear up certain ambiguities. For example, Exodus 34 verse 26 says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Without vowels, the Hebrew words for fat and milk are both identical. The vowel points make it clear that this verse is about milk, chalav, and not fat, chalev. To be clear, we don't have to become Greek or Hebrew scholars in order to study the Bible, but we do have to remember that we have our English Bible because of the work of Greek and Hebrew scholars. And although those scholars have done their best to convey the meaning of the original texts, it's unreasonable to expect our English translations to capture every single nuance and shade of meaning contained in the original. Later in this section, we'll take a look at some useful tools that can help us discover some of those nuances. Lost in Translation Here are just a few examples of Bible passages where concepts and meanings have been obscured by the translation process. A basket of end. God showed Amos a vision of a summer fruit basket and asked him what he saw. Amos replied, a basket of summer fruit. And God explained that the end has come upon my people Israel. Amos 8 verse 2. This is actually a bit of wordplay. Amos was sent by God to deliver a warning message to Israel's northern tribes. In the northern Hebrew dialect, the words for summer fruit and end were pronounced almost identically. In other words, when Amos told God a basket of summer fruit, he was saying something in Hebrew that sounded very similar to a basket of end. This explains why God responds with a warning about the end of Israel. Covenant Loyalty The Hebrew word chesed, Strong's number H2617, is almost impossible to translate succinctly into English. 
It's used nearly 250 times in the Old Testament. For instance, when Nehemiah calls God, You who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Nehemiah 1 verse 5. Here it's translated mercy, which is an aspect of chesed, but not the full picture. The New American Standard Bible uses faithfulness instead of mercy in that verse. The New International Version calls it a covenant of love. The English Standard Version calls it steadfast love. The New Living Translation calls it unfailing love. And the Berean Literal Bible calls it loving devotion. Which translation is right about chesed? All of them, in a way. They each showcase an aspect of what the word means. When God enters into a covenant relationship with us, we can count on him to faithfully show us mercy and devotion because of his steadfast and unfailing love. One way to think about chesed is covenant loyalty. Even when we fail to uphold our end of the relationship, God remains loyal to the covenant consistently showing us more mercy and love than we deserve. Psalm 136 is built around the concept of God's covenant loyalty, declaring over and over, His chesed endures forever. Filthy Rags Isaiah, on more than one occasion, used some incredibly shocking imagery to get his divinely inspired message across. English translations have toned down some of that imagery, toning down the impact of the message in the process. Isaiah compared the state of his people to that of an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Isaiah 64 verse 6. But that's not the complete picture. Lots of things can be filthy, but Isaiah used a Hebrew word referring specifically to the rags a woman would use to absorb her menstrual discharge during her period. Isaiah wasn't saying, our righteousness is a little dirty and could use some attention. He was comparing it to blood-soaked rags that made Israelites temporarily unclean, unable to approach God's temple until they were cleansed. Does that visual make you a little uncomfortable? It should. That's the point. Peter the Pebble After the Apostle Peter acknowledged Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, verse 16, Jesus replied, I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Verse 18. Sometimes that statement is misinterpreted to mean that Peter was the rock on which Jesus built his church. But this is actually another instance of wordplay. The Greek words for Peter, Petros, and rock, Petra, sound similar, but differ in magnitude. A Petros is properly a stone or a pebble, such as a small rock found along a pathway. Helps word studies. A petra is a solid or native rock rising up through the earth. Jesus appears to have been saying, Peter, you are a stone, a petros. I am the rock, the petra, and I will be the foundation for the church I am about to build. See 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 and 1 Peter 2 verse 4 for other references to Jesus Christ as the rock of the church. Never, never, never. The author of Hebrews referred to a divine promise from God, which is already encouraging on its own. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13 verse 5. What doesn't translate here are the negatives the author used. In English, a double negative cancels itself out. If someone is not unintelligent, then he's probably smart. In Koine Greek, negatives stack, adding additional emphasis instead of canceling each other out. 
Hebrews 13 verse 5 uses five negatives in the original Greek. First a double negative, then a triple. There is an incredible emphasis on this promise. The English equivalent of this emphasis would be something like, I will not, will not leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. God leaves no room for doubt on the subject. We can depend on him. Understanding Manuscripts The original books of the Bible, like most ancient works, no longer exist. They were written on parchment and scrolls that have long since crumbled into dust, lost forever to the sands of time. What we do have are manuscripts, copies of copies of copies. A manuscript can be anything from a complete copy of the Bible to a fragment showing only a single verse. Throughout the ages, various scribes have reverently and diligently produced copy after copy of the original Old and New Testament texts, reproducing entire books of the Bible, one handwritten letter at a time. Accounting for Human Error These scribes were only human, of course, and they did make mistakes, some more than others. Scribes like the Masoretes, because of their belief they were copying God's words and their careful methods of checking their work, probably caught the majority of their own errors. But, though rare, sometimes scribes misspelled words. Sometimes they jumbled the letters, or left out letters they thought they'd already written, or skipped entire lines by accident, or wrote things twice, or put the wrong word in the wrong spot. The list goes on. Your first thought might be that we can't possibly trust any biblical manuscript where these kinds of errors are possible. But think about it. We know these errors exist. Why? because we have a lot of biblical manuscripts. To understand just how many, here's some context. The 29 dialogues of Plato are preserved through roughly 250 total manuscripts. The Iliad, one of the oldest existing pieces of Western literature, is supported by over 2,000 manuscripts. The Bible's Old Testament alone has been preserved in more than 10,000 manuscripts. The New Testament has been preserved in nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in other languages. No ancient work of literature has been preserved in more manuscripts than the Bible. Because of the sheer quantity of existing biblical manuscripts, many of them from different eras of history and found in different countries, scholars are able to identify and compensate for the rare errors made by scribes. Manuscript Groupings Because there are so many biblical manuscripts, and because some are only partial copies, similar manuscripts are often grouped into larger sources. If you have a study Bible or a Bible with footnotes, you'll come across references to these manuscript groupings, specifically notes about how one set of manuscripts might differ from another. Although the main groups, or text types, of New Testament manuscripts have their differences, it's worth noting that, with few exceptions, these differences are all extremely minor. Nothing we believe to be doctrinally true, and nothing we are commanded to do, is in any way jeopardized by the variants. This is true for any textual tradition. The interpretation of individual passages may well be called into question, but never is a doctrine affected. D.A. Carson, The King James Version Debate, A Plea for Realism. In other words, even though there's plenty of room for debate over the meaning of some biblical passages, None of these text types offer competing instructions on how to obey and follow God. Or, as our online article, What is the Most Accurate Bible Translation, says, While there are slight variations among them, 
most of these variations have little or no impact on major doctrines. Below is a brief overview of the main manuscript groupings and their common abbreviations for your reference. Old Testament Manuscripts There are three primary manuscript sources to consider when it comes to the Old Testament. While there are differences between the Dead Sea Scrolls, DSS, the Septuagint, LXX, and the Masoretic Text, MT, most of these differences are minor, many don't lead to any noticeable changes in our translations, and none of them impact doctrine. Instead, these three sources, three snapshots of the Old Testament, each centuries apart from the other, shows the incredible accuracy with which God's Word has been preserved for thousands upon thousands of years. Dead Sea Scrolls, DSS, copied around 150 BC to AD 70. Oldest surviving copy, around 150 BC. Languages, Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew, and Greek. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a relatively recent discovery. They include hundreds of Old Testament manuscripts, including a nearly complete copy of the Book of Isaiah that had been hidden in the Qumran caves of the Judean desert for nearly 2,000 years. The manuscripts include fragments of every book in the Old Testament, except Esther. The Dead Sea Scrolls have been invaluable in providing evidence that the Masoretic Text, which serves as the backbone of most Old Testament translations, has been accurately copied. The oldest known surviving manuscript of the Masoretic Text was copied 1,000 years after the Dead Sea Scrolls. These much older manuscripts from Qumran offer proof that the Masoretic Text has remained accurate through all these centuries. Septuagint, LXX, translated 300 to 100 BC. Oldest surviving copy, a complete work from the 4th century, but fragments from as far back as the 2nd century BC. Language, Greek. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Septuagint comes from the Latin word for the number 70. Its common abbreviation, LXX, is the number 70 in Roman numerals. Allegedly, this translation was created by 70 or 72 Jewish scholars, resulting in its name. By the first century, there were fewer and fewer Jews who still understood Hebrew, which made a Greek translation like the Septuagint essential. It allowed Greek-speaking Jews to study the scriptures in a language they could understand. The books of the New Testament frequently quote the books of the Old Testament. Very often, those quotations are from the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Masoretic Text, MT, first copied, 6th century. Oldest surviving copy, 10th century. Language, Hebrew. The Masoretic Text is considered the definitive version of the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. Around the 6th century, Jewish scholars known as the Masoretes began compiling and copying manuscripts for the books of the Tanakh, carefully noting discrepancies among the manuscripts, strange spellings, odd grammar, etc. They made notes on the number of verses, words, and letters in the text, along with which verse, word, and letter marked the center of the text. This served as a way to help protect against future copying errors. If the numbers or centers were different on a future copy, then there was an error in the document. Masoretes also added vowel points to the original Hebrew consonants, helping preserve the pronunciation of each word. New Testament Manuscripts Because of the incredible number of available manuscripts, and because of the variations they contain, many modern translations use an approach called reasoned eclecticism when translating the New Testament. Rather than rely on a single manuscript or a single family of manuscripts, 
These translators consider as many manuscripts as possible in an attempt to find the most accurate reading, evaluating them according to a handful of criteria. Both the King James Version and the New King James Version of the Bible are based on the Textus Receptus, see below, which is, in turn, based on manuscripts from the Byzantine text types. Almost all modern translations, including the English Standard Version, the New International Version, and so on, give greater preference to the Alexandrian text types. It should be noted that although there are roughly 6,500 differences between the Byzantine majority text and the Alexandrian critical text, they are mostly minor. The two text types agree 98% of the time. Byzantine text type, M-text. Manuscript ages, 5th to 16th centuries. Language, Greek. The Byzantine text type, sometimes called the majority text or the traditional text, contains the vast majority of existing New Testament manuscripts, roughly 95%. When these manuscripts differ from the Alexandrian text types, the Byzantine text type tends to include more words and explanation. The Byzantine manuscripts greatly outnumber their Alexandrian counterparts, but they are also generally more recent in age. Critics of the Byzantine text type believe that their tendency to be wordier and more detailed than the Alexandrian text type suggests that scribes may have edited and expanded the original text in an attempt to make passages clearer. They also argue that the later dates of the manuscripts make them less reliable, being farther removed from the original writings. Proponents of the Byzantine text type point out that the enormous quantity of Byzantine manuscripts makes it easier to check for scribal errors. They also argue that, in fact, many of the supposed longer Byzantine edits have actually been discovered in earlier manuscripts, meaning that they might not be edits at all, but the actual original text. As we explain in our online article, What is the Most Accurate Bible Translation?, we find the Byzantine text generally to be the more reliable and superior text type, and hence the King James and New King James Bibles present the reader with a more accurate version of the New Testament, including the words of our Savior. Alexandrian text type and new text. Manuscript ages, 2nd to 4th centuries. Language, Greek. The Alexandrian text type, sometimes called the critical text, the neutral text, or the minority text, is a collection of some of the oldest surviving manuscripts of the Bible. The drier climate of Egypt enabled a handful of these ancient papyrus documents to survive for centuries. When these manuscripts differ from those of the Byzantine text type, the Alexandrian text type tends to be shorter and more abrupt in its phrasing. Because of their age, Alexandrian manuscripts are much less common than the Byzantine manuscripts. Critics of the Alexandrian text type point out that these manuscripts are relatively few in number and include a greater number of scribal errors, casting doubt on the scribes who copied them. They see the shorter passages as signs of omissions. Critics also point out that these manuscripts would have been geographically closer to Gnostic influences that could have corrupted the text. Proponents of the Alexandrian text type point out that the Alexandrian manuscripts are older and therefore less distant from the original writings. They believe their tendency to be shorter than those of the Byzantine text type is evidence that they have not been added to. The NU text abbreviation comes from the fact that the critical text was published in the 27th edition of the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament, N, and in the United Bible Society's 4th edition, U. Textus Receptus, TR. Manuscript Ages. 16th to 19th centuries. Language, Greek. The Textus Receptus, Latin for the received text, was assembled by the Dutch monk Desiderius Erasmus and published in 1516. Erasmus used a selection of manuscripts from the Byzantine text type for this project, which eventually became the foundation for the King James Version's New Testament translation. 
While the Textus Receptus is basically from the Byzantine text type, it is not identical. For instance, Erasmus famously added a passage of the book of 1 John, now known as the Johannine Comma, which is supported by almost none of the New Testament manuscripts, Byzantine or otherwise. Other Manuscripts This isn't meant to be a book that explores every manuscript grouping or text type in exhaustive detail. The whole point of this section is to equip you with the tools you need for more effective Bible study, which includes taking a closer look at some of the puzzle pieces that enable you to have a Bible in the first place. That said, if you want to continue researching manuscripts and text types, here are a few that might interest you. The Western text type is an odd duck compared to the Byzantine and Alexandrian text types. It's based on a small handful of Greek manuscripts from the 3rd to 9th centuries that seem to have been heavily edited and paraphrased during the copying process. Words and even clauses are changed, omitted, and inserted with surprising freedom wherever it seemed that the meaning could be brought out with greater force and definiteness. B. Westcott and F. Hort, The New Testament in the Original Greek, page 548. It forms the basis of the New Testament portions of the Syriac Peshitta translation. The Vulgate is a Latin translation of the Bible from the late 4th century. Much of the Vulgate was translated by Jerome of Stridon, a Catholic priest. For centuries, in one form or another, it was the Versio Vulgata, the version most commonly used of the Catholic Church. The Samaritan Pentateuch, or the Samaritan Torah, is used by the Samaritans of Israel. It contains the first five books of the Old Testament written in Samaritan Hebrew. When it differs from the Masoretic text, it often agrees with the Septuagint translation, but it also contains some unique insertions that define Mount Gerizim as a holy site. See 2 Kings 17, 24-41 for the Bible's explanation of how the Samaritan religion began, and John 4, 19-24 for an example of Jesus addressing the Gerizim error. The Targums are collections of Aramaic translations of the Old Testament, written during Israel's captivity, when the language of Babylon became more common among Israelites than Hebrew. They tend to contain both paraphrases and commentary. The oldest known Targums were discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls.